Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT podcast. Your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Dr. Eli Karam, back with you on a very special edition of the AMFT podcast. I'd like to start out by reading the AMFT statement on MFT responsibility to counter racism posted on June 1st. Recognizing that relationships are fundamental to the health and well-being of individuals, couples, families, and communities, the AMFT exists to advance the profession and practice of marriage and family therapy. Because we value how systems impact families and communities, AAMFT is outraged by the continued racial trauma, violence, and loss that our communities of color are experiencing in this country. Our members, our clients, and our society are hurting deeply, and it's vital that we stand together and in solidarity against injustice. There is no room in our society for inequality, and it's vital that we use our platform, relationships, and training to enact change. It is a core value in AAMFT to support, promote, and protect diversity, to value all individuals and groups as free from prejudice and oppression as possible, and to foster a climate where equity and mutual respect are intrinsic. Marriage and family therapists have a direct responsibility to counter racism. We are uniquely positioned to understand and recognize them as the systemic effect that oppression, inequity, and overt and covert racism have on individuals in marginalized communities and have a role in fostering healing and growth. Therefore, AAMFT stands in support of our members dedicated to advancing the fundamental rights, health, safety, and well-being of all individuals, relationships, and communities. We encourage all members to have authentic dialogue to advance systemic change. As an organization, we will continue to advocate against societal inequalities and seek solutions in our clinical research, community, and policy work to ensure that vital change is occurring. And we're going to have a dialogue about healing racial trauma today on the AMFT podcast. This is an interview I conducted several months back face-to-face in Austin, Texas, with our esteemed panel of professionals, Christine Belliard, Erica Wilkins, and Christiana Awasan. Let me tell you about each one of our guests today. Dr. Christine Belliard is an associate professor in the Department of Family Therapy at Nova Southeastern University. Her research centers on MFT's collaborative assessment and treatment of intimate partner violence and the influence of historical racial trauma on couples of color. Additionally, she is committed to social justice and the provision of relevant mental health services to minority families through best practices and training and service delivery. Dr. Belliard provides a number of community trainings and serves as a consultant and board member for a number of groups that align with her areas of interest. She's an alumni of the Minority Fellowship Program, has served as a mentor for the program, 
and is a member of the program's advisory committee. Erica Wilkins is an assistant professor in the Department of Couple and Family Therapy at Drexel University. Uh, she joined there in 2011. Prior to employment at Drexel, she was the director of counseling and consultation at Houston Tillotson University and is an adjunct professor at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Erica specializes in the residual effects of slavery on African Americans, treatment of post-traumatic stress, grief counseling, substance abuse, and culturally competent services and contextual therapy. Dr. Christiana Awasan is a licensed marriage and family therapist, educator, and researcher. She graduated from Drexel with a PhD in couple and family therapy. She is an associate faculty at the Eichenberg Academy for Social Justice in New York. She was formerly at Seton Hall, and she is currently an assistant professor in the MFT program at Iona College in New Rochelle, New York. Her research focuses on diversity, inclusion, and social justice. She's an AMFT clinical fellow and approved supervisor, and she serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Family Psychotherapy. She's published in a number of peer-reviewed journals, including JMFT, and uh, has contributed chapters in such books as Revisioning Family Therapy, Addressing Diversity in Clinical Practice. I'm so happy to be joined here today by Christine, Christiana, and Erica. Welcome, ladies. First question is always, as we are relational by nature, and everybody that gets into MFT has their own story, how they got there. So how did you get into MFT and your interest in what we're talking about today? And you guys are frequently write together and work together speakers at AMFT conferences, including AMF 19 in Austin. So tell us how you got into this field. Okay, I'll start. Um, I'm Christine. So for me, I just believe everybody has a lingering question ever since they're little. And mine was always, how do you have a healthy relationship if it's never modeled for you? And at the time, I didn't really connect it with race, but I just knew that People around me were in relationships, but they didn't seem or feel healthy. And I just was always curious, how can I connect and allow people to have more healthy relationships? And I want to experience that myself, too. And um, I remember going to college, and as time went on, I, you know, there, there's like this pretty path you should go, or so you think. And so I thought my pretty path was law. So I was going to do family law and help families that way. And I remember I got really involved. I went to a historically black college and on campus, there was just so much talk about what are you gonna do to help black people in their um, current condition. And so I remember going to put on this big panel and we had different attorneys that came and spoke to us, all of them were black, and we divided it based on the type of law they practiced. So, you know, you're in between at the water cooler and I'm talking to some of the family attorneys and they tell me, do not join, don't, don't become a family attorney. We see predominantly they work with black families. Black families when they are going through divorces and they're just trying to come out better than their partner. And so that same week, interestingly, Eli, and there's some other people with you that came to our campus to talk about family therapy. And I remember it was just like a ding, 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 wow. And then at the conference, the annual conference also took place that week. And so for me, it just seemed like a natural fit because I was interested in helping predominantly minorities, predominantly black people, about around their relationships and relationship formation and maintenance. So that's how I entered into the field. Well, what about you, Erica? So my path was uh, interesting. 
as an African-American woman, um, I actually pivoted from a music degree um, into this field. And when I, I didn't know what field of uh, mental health discipline I wanted to get into, but as a black woman, I knew I wanted to be healing my people in a way that could best touch my people. And so I actually went through a series of applying to different disciplines and saying, no, that's not for me. And then where I obtained my master's degree, um, Drexel University, I remember reading through their mission statements and saying that they trained students to understand uh, modernist and postmodern models and then to critically think about um, who those models fit and how those models need to be adjusted to make sure that therapists aren't oppressive in the therapy room. And I said, I don't know what marriage and family therapy is, but that's the type of healing that I want to do. <laughs> and so what, appealed, what has appealed to me then and continues to appeal to me is that I think in the treatment of black people that systemic therapy is the best pathway to do that. And so that's how I'm here. No, I certainly want to ask you more about that, but uh, last but not least, uh, Christiana, what's your pathway to MFT? Right. So I actually started with MFT way before I knew it. So I come from a very large family. Um, I'm the middle child of seven. So we all have our own different ways of functioning and personality, but at the same time, we all work together. So I've always been interested in how we're so different, but at the same time, we work together. So I remember I went to Syracuse University for my undergrad. I used to do, I was a um, psychology major and pre-med, and I did a lot of study with mice. I remember sitting at the counter table with my best friend, and I was like, I don't want to work with mice anymore. <laughs> and he was like, well, what do you want to do? I was like, well, I really want to just like study relationship and work with people. And so he was like, well, then just do it. So I decided, okay, I'm going to start writing all my research paper. It's going to be focused on relationship. So Syracuse had this big library, the Bird Library, very big. So I was looking for like research and studying like black families. I couldn't find anything. I was like, this is really strange. I was like, I don't understand what this is. So. I basically searched everywhere, was able to find some stuff. So that was my undergrad, but still I was like, um, I'm also Nigerian, so going to medical school is a big deal. So I was like, well, maybe I should just keep trying this medical school thing, but it wasn't my heart, right? And then I graduated, and then afterwards I was like, I really want to do this therapy thing because that's all I see myself doing. People were trying to push me into social work. I was like, no, that's not really what I envision. I actually see myself working with black people, dealing with relationships, having them come to therapy, doing research on them, um, and together, like working together. So I decided that I wanted to do marriage and family therapy. Well, I went to Syracuse for four years. I didn't know we had a marriage and family therapy program. <laughs> it was right across the street. You I didn't know. even know it. <laughs> So I finally like saw it and then I applied and ever since then I've been in the field and just really doing a lot of work with people of color, black people, and particularly like really studying like the effect of racial trauma, which we'll get into, on black people and like our mental health and relational health in general. So Yeah, I love and, and 
that you all have kind of come together. When I picked this field, I didn't know systemic language, but I had always kind of thought that way. And then I learned the language is, oh, like a light bulb went off. Mm -hmm. But I started, it sounds like much like you all just wanted to work with people, but mm -hmm. you all were all four of us are academics in the room. So uh, talk about a little bit about, before we start talking about racial trauma, how your, your journey into academia, was it you wanted to uh, make a difference on a, on a larger level, a higher system? Well, for me, um, I remember being introduced to family therapy, starting graduate school, and I think for most family therapists, you get in wanting to work with people. Um, and then when I started doing the work through my first internship, that's when I realized how deep the disconnect was between our theories and our models and the people that I wanted to serve who looked like me, who were primarily African-American, I was, or black, I was working in an adoptive facility and we had a disproportionate amount of young black and brown kids. And I just felt like I have the theory, I have the love, but there's something missing between how I was trained and the work that really needs to be done. And similar to Christiana, I remember going to the literature, there's gotta be stuff out there that really applies family therapy with these communities and there was little to nothing. Um, but there was a person, Lenore McWay, and she was at Florida State, and I was just intrigued by her work with foster care youth of color. And so I ended up going to Florida State and working with her. Being in that setting of getting your doctorate, being with my colleagues, I just thought there was a need. Throughout my training, I had one person of color as a faculty member, and I just always felt misunderstood and that communities of color were misunderstood by therapists. And so for me, not that I had this idea or dream of being in academia, but I saw that there was a need, and if I wasn't willing to fill it, you know, who would? So that's for me why I entered into that. Uh, so my path wasn't, I didn't start my master's program knowing that I was gonna go for the PhD. Um, but I was a non-traditional student. I took seven years off between undergrad and my master's. Um, and so when I came from my master's, I was very focused. Um, I wanted to hit the ground running and take the baton as far as possible. And so I remember my first semester of my first year asking a supervisor, I said, okay, what are some mistakes that I can learn from you without having to repeat them myself? What would you want to know at this point in your educational career? And she said, make sure you can do more than listen to people's problems throughout your career. But I still didn't know. Um, then, because Drexel kept telling us to push and um, being surrounded by many students of color, many faculty of color sitting in classrooms and bringing up points that the students would have, you know, while eating lunch, um, saying, you know, I remember somebody saying, pick up Joy DeGruz's book about post-traumatic slave disorder and me reading that, and then somebody saying, pull up Naeem Akbar, and when you pull that up, go into your, um, your contextual class and ask some questions about, you know, related to this. So I remember sitting in a contextual theory class and asking my uh, white Jewish professor, I said, wait, so the, the goal is forgiveness? Okay, so you're telling me that the person that raped my great-great-great-great-grandmother, I'm supposed to find a way to find, uh, absolve them. Mm -hmm. Of, of guilt in order for me to be healthy. And that really started like piquing my interest around the residual effects of slavery. Like, okay, I think there's something righteous in black folks being able to own that historical trauma and to be able to name it and to be able to use um, the, the, the righteous anger um, to work towards healing. And so at a point that one of, um, one of my mentors was Stephanie Brooks, 
Um, so she was always encouraging throughout the master's program. And then I had a, another African-American professor, Angela Adson, one day tap me on the shoulder second year of my master's program saying, you can write and you need to write. And so it was from that point on that I was able to then go um, to my black mentor's office and say, I want to go to a PhD program. I need your help. And I intentionally mentioned their ethnicity um, because I feel like that was really pivotal mm -hmm. to be surrounded by black faculty that said, OK, you can do this. And here are all the tools and resources that you need to be able to, to make it. Yeah. yeah. So for me, it's almost similar. So I traditionally my dad is an academician as well so I've always said to myself and I look so much like my dad <laughs> that I don't want to go into academia I don't want to be a professor I was always against it but when I got into the master's program at Syracuse and uh, my mentor at that time was um, Jonathan Simber so Jonathan was like and and we were working with Kadmona Hall which was another mentee of his and he was basically like, so what do you want to do? What research do you want to do? I was like, this is interesting. A lot of people, when I tell people I'm going in for my um, graduate study as a marriage and family therapy, they were going, well, but black people don't go to therapy. And I was like, yeah, but that's not true. We do go to therapy. So I had to like convince them why I'm like trying to be a marriage and family therapist. So I figured since we have a clinic at Syracuse, there are black people who came to therapy, black family who came to therapy, let's research them and ask them what their experiences are like to come to therapy and if there is something that we're doing that we need to do differently. So we did this whole study and one of the things we found out was that the black people who came to therapy, they were like, yeah, we're grateful that we come to therapy, but what would be really helpful in therapy is if our therapists actually mention our race and talk about race, right? And that it's very important to us to have a therapist who looks like us, who understands our culture. So I started to get into, okay, I can actually like doing this kind of research. I love doing research, but do I really want to go get a PhD? I'm not sure that's what I want to do. So Jonathan encouraged me. Can Hardy encourage me to like go in? And I was like, oh, I don't want to be like that. But I actually love doing this stuff. So I decided to like apply for my PhD at Drexel. And since then, I graduated. Now I'm like teaching and doing research. So it's really like what I love doing. And like what you were saying, like it's so. I mean, I came. I started teaching at Seton Hall in 2014. And I remember some of my students of color and black students coming to me and saying, you're my first like, black professor. And their eyes, their faces lit up just knowing that they have someone that looks like them, that has a PhD, that's done this work and is also licensed. And trying to get licenses doing this work really helps them along. So it's really very important. Uh, yeah, the passion comes through as the three of you all talk, and I'm so excited to have you on here because I consider you emerging leaders in the field around this area. We're going to talk about racial trauma. So let's first define that and give some examples how it might occur in a clinical setting. So one of the things in terms of racial trauma, so if we look at the DSM, the DSM-5, there's a whole description of what trauma is, right? And there are symptoms that are connected to it, like anxiety, um, anxiousness, destructive like thoughts, right? Uh, avoidance. There's also the three aspect that they've added, which is 
basically like reckless behavior and also like having emotional like distraught and also not being able to be in clear relationship with yourself emotionally and with other people and so when you think about just really racial trauma itself like i'm able to extrapolate that to racial trauma and i say this because in terms of when i connected back to my study with black um, families coming to therapy a lot of the reason why they said they wanted to come to therapy is to come to therapy for a therapist that looks like them because they feel like that person will understand them better. So as I started doing therapy, one of the things, um, one of my first private practice that I worked at basically focused on black and brown people. That's all we serve. And having clients come in, which what they describe as anxiety or depression, they're like, I'm very anxious. Um, I'm not sure what's going on. I feel like I can I can't move on with life. Life is just too difficult. And knowing a lot of like Ken's Ardi's work on like um, multicultural relational perspective, I was able to kind of see how a lot of what they were describing was anxiety, yes, but was connected to trauma. And it was specifically connected to trauma about who they are racially, right? And a lot of what they talked about was when I'm at work, I feel like people are attacking me because, not because of like the work I do, but my personality, or because of what I'm doing as a person, right? And so I particularly had one, this one client who basically was having a lot of difficulties at work. She was the only black young female higher up. She was like, I love this job. I've always loved this job, but all of a sudden, everything is about how I'm doing stuff wrong, how this is not right. And she went to a, like an all white school, so she didn't really understand what was going on for her. So as she described all this anxiety and depression, and I kind of like chatted out for her, like this is trauma, this is trauma. Well, what's all this trauma connected to? The fact that you are a young black woman at this organization and have this position. Then I asked her, like, do you have a sense that maybe this is because of your race and maybe you are experiencing racial trauma? And she just sat there and like cried, literally cried for 15 minutes. Yeah, you're the first one to put a name on that. Exactly. And that's what she said. She was like, you just explained it to me. Like, you just named it because now I'm not blaming myself, which is part of the symptom of racial trauma. And black people and people of color, we do this a lot. It's my fault. It's something that's wrong with me. So she stopped blaming herself and started to see that it's the system that she's in. So that helped us better to help her deal with her anxiety and her depression rather than going like, oh, there's something wrong with you. It's like there's something within the environment, within the relationship. We can't take racism away, but we can kind of figure out how to, um, can use this word, inoculate yourself from it. So, yeah. I um, echo everything that Christiana just stated. Um, for me, in my work, it's it's finding the foundation of that racial trauma as it is attached attached to Black people's experience in this country, right? And so, this idea of the residual effects of slavery, looking at slavery as being this massive historical trauma. And now that we have this emerging field of epigenetics, mm -hmm. um, where we can see that there are absolutely genetic markers that our genes have been transformed because of this historical trauma mm -hmm. that, that has occurred. And so I've been able to do that with black 
um, clients who are descendants of slaves. I've also been able to do that with um, clients who are descendants of Holocaust survivors. Mm -hmm. I've been able, it's like these things that are similar to Christiana's breakdown of PTSD mm -hmm. in the DSM-5, um, being able to say, oh, of course you're experiencing that. This, what's your historical background? Even if they don't come in saying, I have this legacy, um, being able to say, you're having this symptom, I think I'm able to trace this back, but you connect the dots for me. Mm -hmm. And so when people are given that gift, because I, I look at it as being a mm -hmm. gift, mm -hmm. um, when people are given that gift, being, then being able to say, oh, this makes sense. And so now that I can name it, now I can work on it and stop internalizing this as being some sort of weakness of my own, as opposed to something that existed before I got here that's being continues to be perpetrated in real time through racial trauma. Like so I think of the residual effects of slavery as being historic and the racial trauma as being what's perpetuated in the present moment. Then that gives them tools to be able to inoculate it mm -hmm. to Christiana's point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and connecting it to context. And of course all of us are within our family, our community. But there's something in the social climate that can't be disconnected from our racialized self. Mm -hmm. And that everybody has a racialized self. And that it's just in the air that we breathe. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to mention white supremacy in order to talk about um, really what is racial trauma. Because I think you can start to just use the language and then it kind of takes away the sting or the realness of it, but that it does exist in the context of what it means to for everyone to breathe in the space and the air. Uh, we say, yes, we understand slavery happened, but that it's not just an event but that really even narratives with it, people had to live their lives, make decisions, and then their children, the narratives that were passed down to survive the system. So that even in our current generation, we really do have these narratives that have been internalized that are connected to oppression that we walk and live and breathe through. And so I agree, just even being able to name and understand my context and live reality, and that that's a piece of literally every piece of my journey and experience. Yeah, it's, I mean, these, these macro historical forces af affecting the micro work that we do as couple and family therapist, and I mean, those are, are great examples. Mm -hmm. So if I have a client, I very rarely a client will come in and label this like you, but all of you in your own unique way, talk about how you bring that to the forefront. If we have a lot of you know clinicians listening to this, give some, some tips on how, especially if you are not a therapist of color, how you initiate this dialogue with these more contextual macro kind of forces of oppression. If you, in this case me, a white male, because I think that is part of the reason the silence and the elephant in the room, that people in the majority don't know necessarily how to deal with minority experience. So they think of not mentioning it all as the best way, but you talked about how humanizing and, and how normalizing it is to bring it up and to give somebody a, a label for their experience that has been this internalized thing that they thought they couldn't talk about, especially in a therapy room. So give us some tips on how you do that. If I can, um, before we do that, I think it's necessary to kind of elevate this point that we keep talking about like people of color, minority experience, racial trauma. And I think that like through this conversation thus far, we've really been talking about black experiences of racial trauma. And I really want to lean into the fact that all people of color and white people are experiencing racial trauma. 
and um, you know other people. We just did this workshop at this conference, and listening to bearing witness to the narratives of people of color who were not black, who were talking about how um, problematic the model minority narrative is, how much racism they have experienced, how being marginalized um, has affected them, um, bearing witness to their narratives. Also, likewise, really uh, holding white people in that space and saying, okay, can you talk about what's going on for you and whiteness? Can we name that? Can we talk about uh, the dehumanizing process of you being indoctrinated into white privilege and white supremacy? And can you lean into that, right? Because I think often, um, these conversations can be looked at as, okay, so this is like the minority group. We need to examine what's going on with them. You know, and as black women sitting here, we're thinking from our own social location, right? And speaking primarily from that. But the reality is that we're all being collectively dehumanized right. by this idea of racial trauma. Mm-hmm. And I think with that, like in saying that, there's been a lot of writing generations before us <laughs> have written a lot on how to help white clinicians work with clients of color, right? I, I think I remember one time I was sitting with Ken and I was like, enough of like trying to help white therapists figure out how to work with clients of color because I was struggling even with my peers and now my students are asking me of color the same thing. Can we get writings on therapists of color working with um, clients of color? Because we're also struggling, right? And I think one of the things that I always tell everyone, whether it is white clinician or clinicians of color, that we have to start with ourselves first. If we don't understand what racial trauma is and if we don't believe that racial trauma is real then we're not going to be able to do that with our clients then we're not be we won't be able to say hey we actually need to bring up race and this has to start even way before the clinician it has to start in the classroom right a lot of our programs like are we talking about race and racism not just on like diversity level but even deeply as like this the effect of racism is creating mental, emotional, and relational issues for people of color and for white people as well. So as systemic thinkers, how do we actually start teaching the next generations of clinicians that so that they can actually be able to feel comfortable, be comfortable bringing it up in therapy regardless of, of their race and not just bringing it up just to say, oh, I talked about race, but really bringing it up to be able to see its connection to the dysfunction and to health as well and healing for people of color. And I, just to add on a bit to that, I just also think that it's so key to, a lot of we do think of people of color as racialized beings, but that white people are also racialized beings. And I agree as far as in our programs, what the conversations are and how we do keep it at this cerebral level. Okay, we're gonna look at this minority group this week or what have you. But that it really has to be an understanding and connection of what's going on in my lived reality and the narratives that have also been passed down to me if I'm white, if I'm of color. And what does that really mean? Because that can't be separated or separate from when I'm in the therapy room because you bring in those narratives, you recognize it or not. So that trauma can also be inflicted mm-hmm. to your peers, but then also to your clients. And to me, that's why, or to us, this is why it's critical because there is traumatization, mm-hmm. racial that's even going on. It sounds like we're just not even aware of it. And I think that even speaks to the privilege that you may not even have to be aware of what's going on, for sure. 
Yeah, so I'm, I'm with you all. Before we talk about what you do in the therapy room, it has to start in the classroom, and it's an mm-hmm. uh, isomorphic kind of parallel process. So uh, let's talk about that. And as you said, it's not something that just we're going to do on one lecture in the syllabus. Right. It's a dialogue. It should be infused without the training. Mm-hmm. We're all educators here. Let's talk about how you all do that in the classroom before we move to the therapy room. Mm-hmm. So I'll have to back it up because, you know, before the, the classroom is part of the system, but I think that you have to back it up to, okay, so who's working in these academic spaces? How are faculty meetings administered? Mm-hmm. What conversations and dialogues are or are not had? Because I think it's a misnomer, like, you know, we all understand um, isomorphism, right? So, you know, if this is like void in all the other academic spaces and departments, if people are not being hired because of whatever institutionalized structural mm-hmm. reasons, and then, uh, when people are in the academic, uh, faculty and staff are in the academic spaces, if they're not having these conversations, then how authentic is the classroom experience really? Because I think what happens is that if the idea of that this needs to be across systems, like in, in, in the system this needs to be happening at multiple levels, then if that does not happen, then is it only relegated to the diversity class to have these conversations? Or our faculty feeling like, oh, this needs to be in our research class, Mm -hmm. this needs to be in our models class, that this needs to be woven throughout our curriculum. And so I think that there's some like granular foundational things that need to happen before the actual classroom experience can occur, if that's going to be authentic. I feel, uh, piggybacking off that, I feel fortunate I teach in an MFT program, co-empty program, housed within a school of social work. So that is inherent to social work values. So I feel like that is built into our faculty meetings. But I'm curious if you all's experience being an agent of change and a leader in that way and kind of introducing that dialogue on the faculty level. How, how do you do that, Erica? So I'm in a very different space than most folks are. I mean, many of our faculty are faculty who are black, uh, who identify primarily from the marginalized location. There also was a precedent set very long ago, I would say by Marlene Watson, in terms of this will be a space where we do this. And so there's a culture that was created before I was even a student there, and now I'm a faculty member at Drexel, that then means that like there's a way that we hold the space. Yeah. Um, you know, with constant kind of reflection about are we still doing this? You know, and like challenging ourselves. So I think that I should hit it. <laughs> well, for me, I was not trained in Drexel, so, <laughs> so I had a very different experience. I've been at three different institutions as a student. The first one I transferred from because I did not feel supported as a black student. Um, for me, I'm at an institution where um, a number of our faculty are white and they've been at the institution for decades. Um, what I appreciate is that they are at least open to building relationships with people of color, including myself. Because I think the power and transformation comes through relationships, which we all say we believe in, but I've seen situations where there wasn't even a desire for a relationship. Hey, you here were good, to the diversity <laughs> class, you know? But one of those, th- well, and I also think that we can't separate ourselves from the time that we're in. Yeah. We're in a time yeah. when the Black Lives Matter movement was created. Mm-hmm. Me too. I mean, there's so much going on where, like, so we can't turn the same wide eye for a lot of people that we used to be able to. And so, being willing to at least have people, as Erica mentioned, in the space. And then, when you're in the space, how can you at least make sure that if you are maybe um, feeling as if you're being silenced, how can you 
continue to be that agent of change where you can, again, have space in the conversation to even allow people to realize, like, this is something that we need to move, change around the schedule for this faculty meeting. This is something we, I, I've sent out emails. My, okay, so on Juneteenth, I'm like, okay, everyone, this is like for the whole list of today's Juneteenth. I gave my own history about my family. I'm here from Texas. And so um, with my lineage, we know we have family members who on Juneteenth were free, from, were knew that they were free from slavery. And so I had faculty members responding, students, I didn't even, I've never even heard of Juneteenth. Mm. So I'm like, this is something that we need to talk about in our class. So really creating that space to, again, be reflective on, hey, we, we're all a part of this racialized system. Mm -hmm. And so we have to see how we can all help to dismantle it together, for sure. Yeah, I think, for me, um, being trained at Syracuse and at Drexel, and I feel like I mentorship is key and modeling is key. I feel like all my professors at Syracuse and um, at Drexel, Malin can just really mentoring and modeling how do you speak up? How do you use your voice when it's important? As a student, I got it. Like, yeah, I need to develop this to be able to advocate for my client, but I didn't understand the self of the professor mm -hmm. that was happening, <laughs> yeah. right? Till I got into like one of my first like faculty meeting and just the interaction in terms of power and privilege how conversations are, are heard and like how to kind of like slow it down and say, you know what, you said X, Y, and Z and that didn't sit well with me. I'm not trying to attack you, but I'm just trying to kind of tell you how I'm feeling from what you said. So being able to do that even in faculty meetings, right? Because we have to be able to model it to our students in the classroom. When we talk about race, it's going to be heated. When we talk about gender, it's going to be heated, particularly about race. So how do I model it to my students that this is the way we have this difficult conversation? And it, it goes back to how do I hold myself in terms of the power and the privilege that I have as the professor? How do I model that to them? And how do I model to my white students will automatically think that because I'm a black professor, I'm going to be against them, that this is this is not what you think like i see your humanity and i want you all to see each other's humanity and because if you all can do that for each other you do it for your clients as well so really modeling that from a very like like the level of hiring faculty of color modeling interactions with ourselves as faculty members and doing the same things for our, um, our students as well because then they can do the same thing for their clients so Yes, this beautiful isomorphic parallel process. Okay, what needs to happen in the classroom to move us forward in this direction? I'm really curious, as you guys are, are the leaders in this area, what needs to happen? So one of the first thing I usually do, so even though starting from my syllabus, it's like written, like this class, we're gonna talk about self of the therapist. It's gonna feel like therapy, but it's not therapy. <laughs> And self of the therapist until like really looking at every which class is this? How early it is in the beginning every, of the training in every class? Every okay. class, whether it is um, right now, I'm teaching um, diagnosis, assessment, the, a lot of the theory classes, counseling skills, like every single class, even in my research, like it's in there. Like we're gonna talk about how 
all your contextual factors are going to impact the ways in which you do this work and bring yourself to this work. And then I described the difference between diversity and social justice. So from the beginning of the, the syllabus, the, the contract that the students get, they know that we're going to talk about this. And then the first day of class, really helping them to understand like my teaching pedagogy and the ways in which I'm going to model everything to them, right? And I'm going to really focus on um, power and privilege and how we have this conversation. And also in every single one of my example, I make it very, very diverse. I talk about race, change the race of the client, talk about the gender, their sexual orientation. I bring up this topic. So how would we, like in terms of research, when we're doing research with people of color, what should we be looking at? When we're talking about diagnosis, like what do we need to be looking at? I purposely put in, in my syllabus social cultural trauma, that that's one of the things that we're gonna look at as diagnosing for like in this class and like learning how to do differential diagnosis around that too. So it's just basically being intentional about like actually bringing this stuff up and the examples that we use, the books that we use, the articles that we let the students read, all of that, even the assignments, like really having them speak about their um, own experiences too. I should say, so the, the courses that I primarily teach it's called his historical and social cultural issues, which in other institutions would be the diversity class. <laughs> we call it historical and social cultural because instead of looking at how to treat this population, that population, it's of like, okay, take a reflection. I'm gonna hold up a reflection to yourself and examine your own biases in order for you to be able to recognize them, to normalize their existence, and then to not use them in the therapy room to understand when they're being triggered. Um, so I primarily teach, we have now two courses of that, and I also supervise. In every space that I teach, um, along with what Christiana's mentioned in terms of writing it in the syllabus, I am unapologetic of that I am teaching from my particular social location. There are times that I will even throw out there very explicitly that I understand that the dominant discourse should dictate that I try to present myself in some approximation of white maleness and that I am going to lean into my black womanhood, um, meaning that from my social location, this is going to be as egalitarian, um, as relational as possible. Let's push the chairs around the room. This is all about us co-constructing knowledge. I do that because I want to model for the students that I'm leaning into my social location and I want them to also lean into their social location, mm -hmm. that we're not going to fade into the dominant discourse or like understanding these uh, terms and ideas through this like bubble of, so this is how uh, white folks want us to study this, mm -hmm. right. that we're going to be examining, you know, from our own place, mm -hmm. we're gonna be examining all of these ideas and topics. Yeah, and you, you got to own it, and that's why, yeah, right. And you own it from the beginning, and in your discussion, in, in your assignments, and, and you're unapologetic about it, right? I mean, that is the way you have to do it. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Christine? I think we've talked about, of course, having diversity as far as faculty, administrators, but also students. So I teach in South Florida, and we have a very diverse student population, which is so rich. So we actually just had our first night of the diversity class um, that I teach last week, 
And it was so beautiful because I was telling them, we don't, we're not going to read in a book a movie about what's going on for different people based on their social location, their context. We have it here in the room. We have migration stories. We have stories about gendered selves, racialized selves. And so really also connecting them with their narratives through conversation. Because of course we want them to feel comfortable in the therapy room conversing. But a lot of times our work is so cerebral in the classroom where they're talking quote unquote, to a screen on a PowerPoint. But what does it mean to decenter, as Erica was talking about, these traditional practices of teaching and pedagogy and really allow them to converse and talk connected to their selves and their identity and their contextual selves with one another. Um, so it really can be transformative. Yeah, I think it builds a cohort too. Yeah, I mean, sure. you, you can share that and like you said, yeah, everybody has their experience of that. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. What were you going to say, Erica? Um, I wanted to say that, to flip it, as a black student, um, as a student of color, um, what was always helpful for me in these educational spaces was when white teachers in particular leaned in and said, I am white and I am privileged, I'm a cishet, you know, whatever, you know, all that, you know, filling in their social locations and stepping into it. Because um, I think that what isn't often talked about is that as people of color, we often have like this antenna mm -hmm. and we're trying to figure out, are you safe or are you not safe? Mm -hmm. And that when you have an instructor that's willing to wear their social location, which also renders them open to vulnerability, mm -hmm. but willing to step into that. I know as a black student, I was always like, oh, I might be able to like this professor. I might get something out of this class. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it does still talk about what this looks like in the therapy room, in the sense that, to me, the client it used to be in our field that you know we're this blank slate that therapy therapy was value free. We don't think that anymore. And you have to own, like you said, you were three strong women and strong voices. You have to own who you are. Talk about how you make this dialogue intentional in the therapy room with your clients. You gave us that great example to start with, Christiana. But I'm curious, other examples when somebody, you know, does not come in with this as a presenting problem or even something around this, how you make it relevant and own what you believe? That's a really good question. Um, because a lot of people ask that question a lot, right? Like, clients are not gonna just pop in there you know, on your couch and be like, I have racial trauma. Like, usually what they say is, we have communication issues, I have anxiety, I have depression. Like, they don't label it as a racial trauma. So one of the things in terms of even the same thing, putting out like what viewpoint I'm coming from, I usually tell my client, even from my website, like this is what we're focused on, right? I work from this multicultural relational perspective where we're gonna talk about everything about yourself, right? And how your race, your gender, your class, your relationship with your family is impacting the problem that you're bringing into therapy. And most of the time what I do a lot is I just, listen listen to what the client is saying and then i start asking them questions around whatever that contextual um, place is and when it comes to like race like well how do you experience this as a person of color or as a black woman or as a black man like so when you describe all of this are you one of the only black person in your environment how does that impact you so really asking questions and i've had clients put push back and say, no, 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 it's, it's not about that. I had a couple the other day there, um, biracial couple. So I was like, well, I'm wondering how race is playing in your relationship. They're like, no, race doesn't play anything. Age does, gender does, 
I even think like in terms of our career does and I'm like oh that's interesting that you all can like label all these things that plays out in your relationship all these factors but race doesn't what sense do you make of that so rather than like trying to like tell them what it is I ask them questions to be more curious about like what might be going on and what difficulties they might have with it yes yeah, so I love about this profession here you I'm a curious guy by nature is probably why I'm doing this. You, you can, as long as you can tie it to your hypothesis, what's going on, you can ask anything. And it's alliance building, not alliance hurting. So that they responded positively to you asking that. They did. And some clients would still not like take it. So I drop it because the, the goal is not to convince them, right? The goal is to plant the seed and see what happens. And because we're going to come back to it, if that's the part of the problem, it's going to come back again. So. Um, in my experience working with clients, I know that we're saying a lot of times clients don't come in identifying racial trauma, but I have a number that do. Mm-hmm. Maybe they, in their career, they're the only person of color, they feel voiceless, they feel that they're not able to get certain positions. Maybe there was a slight that happened. Sometimes the, you can have clients that do come in because I am just feeling stuck or paralyzed. Sometimes even the initial phone call, like, oh, you're black? Oh, I was looking like, so sometimes it's right in front of you, yeah. for sure. Um, but then I think sometimes, um, as Christiana was talking about, if we really are talking about how we breathe in the air of racial trauma daily, then it's not far from our experiences. If it's connected to our contextualized self that's walking and navigating through the world. So even if someone, if you're talking about the presenting problem and what's bringing them into therapy, oftentimes, as Christiana was talking about, just this curiosity and just being open to ask and comfortable enough mm-hmm. to ask, okay, mm-hmm. so when you mention like that's just the way that women do in your family, mm-hmm. what has that been like for you coming from a black family and this relationship between mm-hmm. the women and the men? And it's just amazing um, the space that can open up because one time in my um, one of the courses I was teaching, we had a conversation about race and then I'd ask a question. I said, in this room, I'm just curious right now, who daily has a thought about slavery? Mm-hmm. Every single black person raised their hand. Mm-hmm. And I remember some of the white students, I just can't imagine you would, this would come up every day. So that it's so, so it's not just that this is something historical that mm-hmm. comes up every now and then, but there's also present day racial trauma connected to the history. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to add that sometimes it's not some elusive far thing that we mm-hmm. have to pull out, mm-hmm. but that it really is a daily struggle. Yeah, it's just giving a voice to it. Yeah. Also, how much you all told us all about your background and kind of your own mm-hmm. family of origin experience. How much of that do you share as a, a way to not only own who you are, but mm-hmm. to join with your clients? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I was thinking about that as you all were giving your responses, because what I often do with clients is in addition to my marketing, um, showing who I am. There are some clients that come in depending on their uh, developmental level of racial consciousness that will be able to pinpoint this is racial trauma, this is not. Um, But I also experience a lot of clients having that antenna thing with me. And I've experienced that with other black people that have been my clients and have been like, I'm a black therapist, really? Like, you have your antenna up with me? But yes, it makes sense. And other people of color. And so what I've done is use myself in the therapy room. So for example, um, a couple of years ago, I was working with a client who was a daughter of Vietnamese refugees. And I very early on said, okay, so as a black woman, there's some stuff that I just may not understand. So I'm thinking this, and as a black person, this is, might be how we would 
go about this? Is it clicking for you? How do you differ? How are you the same? So being able to use myself to model for folks who may have that antenna up, mm -hmm. oh, it's safe for me to talk about this because sometimes people aren't talking about things because they're sussing the therapist out mm -hmm. and they're trying to figure out, can you handle all that comes with this? And so with therapists being able to um, uh, socially locate themselves mm -hmm. and again, take that risk of vulnerability, I think it invites clients to further explore. Yeah, and to me, you're modeling from the beginning what this therapy is going to be about. It's yeah. going to be authentic. We're putting it on the table and, you know, you're not just going to soft pedal it. So, yeah, that's something, I mean, I think that's just good therapy doing that in the beginning. All right, so here's, uh, I could talk to you all for another hour, but here's the big kind of macro question at the end. And what do we need to do as a profession? You are obviously emerging leaders in this area. What do we need to do as a profession and specific as an organization, the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy, to move this dialogue further? Because one could say, you know, compared to the other mental health professionals, especially, you know, social work and even community psychology, we're behind the curve. So conversations like this are a start, but what do we need to do to kind of move the needle? That's interesting. I don't even, I, I think I disagree slightly that we are behind the curve. I think with social worker and all other psychotherapy field, they're more about the mi macro aspect of like racial trauma. Like this is what racism is doing. I think a place that AMFT, the profession of MFT needs to go to is how does this impact our interpersonal relationship? How does it impact our intrapersonal relationship? So like, I mean, a lot of our works is focused on like visual effects of slavery, just really how do you teach this in the classroom? Also like one of the things that I'm working on is really in terms of couple relationship. How does racial trauma impact couple relationships? So I feel like as a field, that's where we need to go to. And we need to actually recognize the the goal that we have in our field, right? So for example, this morning we had our um, presentation, right, on uh, MFGs of color holding racial trauma. We were like, it's eight o'clock, maybe there's not gonna be a lot of people that showed up. Our room was full and overflowing. We had like at least 15 people waiting outside just to get in and we couldn't let them in because the room was too small and <laughs> it was just like people really wanted a space to talk about this, to learn more about it, to understand what it is and how to help themselves and their clients. So I feel like we do have a lean and I think as an MFD, we just need to own our lean and really invest in that rather than trying to like go to where social work is going to because we have our own uniqueness on this and how we actually look at this and we'll treat this so in thinking about the role of trauma at the personal level but then all the way up to the macro level and how trauma has happened even in our field racially mm -hmm. i think we have to acknowledge that before we're really able to then say we want to become leaders and help people to see what's even going on within our own organization so that reflexive piece and then i think even what we offered earlier about looking and examining inclusivity within our organization, profession, because we do have more people of color coming to the field. So how can we make sure that we're not traumatizing or opening up um, further wounds? Um, because sometimes people don't know the history when they come. They expect, okay, these people are probably already doing these things. And I think a lot of it is how do we make space for those voices? And then also for us to try to dismantle some things that may need to be dismantled to make room to really be able to create a healing space for therapists. Yeah, I think about this systemically, and 
so um, I think that from the students that are um, admitted into programs, um, actually back up, the recruiting and where we recruit for students that are admitted into MFT programs, to the faculty and staff that are working in, in MFT programs, to who's in leadership in this organization, that there needs to be a complete reevaluation of how um, we can across the board be more inclusive. And then once we actually have people faces at the table, what does the conversation look like? Um, since I was a student attending this conference, I remember as a student um, trying to, like, at this conference in particular, find, frankly, safe people to be able to talk to about, like, being a black woman trying to get into this field. And, you know, then I was in the first, we were all went through the minority fellowship program, being the first class of the minority fellows, and once I got through, once I was done with that process, then minority fellows turned to me and saying, I need to talk to you because I'm looking for a safe place to talk to being an ethnic minority in this field. And even today, people saying, now this has been, I've been in this field since 2004, so we're talking a long-ish time. <laughs> it shouldn't still be happening now, 15 years later, that students are seeking us out as a faculty, black faculty members, faculty members of color saying, I think that you might be a place of respite. I need to talk to you because I don't have anybody else to turn to. That indicates to me that there's something fundamentally going on. What do you tell a student like that? Because this is the role and you're going to have to read this heiress. You are very accessible and you're going to get, you know, people are going to reach out to you. So what do you tell a student like that? And, and right, there's, there's scholarship written about this, that black, uh, professors, black female professors, often do this soft work and without um, any type of sort of promotion being attached to it. So actually, I would twist your question and say, so what can be done, um, and this is kind of pie in the sky idea, what can be done to help sustain the people that over and over again, the women of color that over and over again get tapped to do the soft work and frankly some of the cleanup work because of the, some of the racial wounds that are going on in our field, um, what needs to be built in to help sustain us? Whether it's promotion, I don't know, you know, I, I, I don't know, you know, but um, there needs to be something built in to help sustain us because I don't know about the two of you, but when somebody comes and asks me, I need your support, I'm not going to not give them my card. I'm not going to not take time out of my day um, to have the conversation, you know, but that also means that it's a de detriment of some other work. Mm -hmm. I mean, this has uh, been a great dialogue. Please let people know how to reach you all and what you're working on. You work wonderful together. I'm sure this brought you together. I didn't ask, but the first time the three of you all met, because this is your powerful presenters. I'm curious about that and and what you all are working on collaboratively. And yeah, plug anything you want here at the end. Where do we meet? <laughs> I feel like it was through the Minority Fellowship Program and or Drexel. Drexel and AMFT. AMFT. And I think we were at AMFT. We were walking to maybe an Alana dinner together. I think. Yeah. So, um, and I am just so grateful for um, the relationships and for me anybody that's listening and that is a color and you're like what do I do if you do find someone 
I just say feel free to reach out because yeah. I think a lot of us have you know felt the same way because it can be isolating sometimes that can even be symptomology as Christiana mentioned much earlier of racialized trauma that um, feeling of isolation <laughs> um, so what I love is that we have been able to collaborate and so we did present at the conference about holding racial trauma as therapist of color working with clients and also presenting on um, sexual violence that's been experienced by black women. Um, so we want to turn those into papers. So for me, um, personally what I'm working on, I'm really interested in historic and present day racial trauma and its impact of couples of color. And I've really been moving into the work of black adoption. Mm -hmm. I'm an adoptive mother of two, and I really believe that um, experiences of children in foster care, we know that they're disproportionately black and brown children, are symptomatic of what's going on in the larger system connected to racial trauma. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people are just trying to cope and ending up in situations that aren't the best, but that really are not about them, but the larger system. So I've really been moving into that type of work. So. I think, yeah, we all met at AMFT. I remember one of the first time I met Christine, she like came up to me and was like, I read your article. Yes. And I was like, <laughs> And so it was, that's how we connected. And then we find out that we're like Nigerian connected. So we kind of connected that way. So it's been, it's been really great, especially we've been talking about working together for such a long time, but we're always very busy. But this time we're like, we're gonna do this and we're gonna turn our presentations into paper. Um, so we're looking forward to that. For me personally, like what I'm doing right now, I do, I've been doing a lot of work around how racial trauma affects black couples and coupling relationship. So a lot of my writing has been on that. And I'm also like, um, right now I'm trying to finish out a research and completely complete it, how we can actually talk about race in the classroom, how we teach race in the classroom and what that experience is like for faculty of color doing that. So that's like what I'm doing right now. This is actually, like you said, we've been wanting to work together for a while. Um, this was our first presentation ever together. Um, I think we enjoyed it. We are hoping to get and do another presentation next uh, for the next AMFT conference because there seems to be such a large need um, to continue this conversation. Um, I am currently working on the residual effects of slavery in the supervisory relationship. I created, I've done some workshops around it, I created kind of an informal film about it. Uh, and so working to help folks recognize uh, when the residual effects of slavery are coming up for their supervisee mm -hmm. and then how to help them cross over that bridge when it comes up. Mm -hmm. Can't thank the three of you enough uh, for being here and I hope we can continue the dialogue. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Eli, back with you, concluding another installment of the AAMFT podcast. Wow, so much for us to think about, given our current times and what's going on in the world. Thank you, ladies, for starting that dialogue, and I can't wait to continue it. Let's give you some resources, news you can use. AMFT has you covered, not only during the COVID outbreak, but also when national news arises that needs a response from relational healers from the systemic therapists, the MFTs in the world. So also on June 1st, on the front page of the AMFT website, aamft.org, you can find resources for MFTs in a racialized climate. Uh, AMFT encourages authentic dialogue 
within the MFA community on race and trauma. So on that page, you'll see information for persons of color about self-care, practical ways to counter racism and support black people as MFTs, and a recommended reading list. And for persons of color about self-care, there's links to radical self-care and strategies for healing. And there's also practical ways, some of which we talked about in that interview, to counter racism and support Black people as MFTs in your clinical work. I'd also like to point out, to dig deeper, if you're looking to learn more about this and you're in need of CEUs, AMFT's one-stop shop for online learning. That's the Tenio system has you covered. You can find that easily on the AMFT homepage too. And you go to Tenio and you scan down race and ethnicity. It has its own column and you'll see a list of CEU offerings. There is a three CEU course right now by Christiana Awasan, who you heard from. It's called Coupling with Context, Black Men and Women in Therapy, an excellent follow-up to what we started in our dialogue. You can also see great topics like an overview of race and ethnicity, teaching what works, multicultural competencies, culturally adapted parent interventions, and valuing diversity. Also, you might join the MFT Interest Network. You know, we've been previewing over the course of the last year the new topical interest networks within AMFT. So whether you're toward the end of your renewal cycle or you just want to join midstream, I'd like to point out the margins to center, cultural connections among marriage and family therapists. It is the newest of the special interest networks, the topical interest networks, And the mission of Margins to Center is to increase cultural competency in order to better serve client populations while increasing cross-cultural collaboration between systemic therapists. This network aims to improve clinical services while advancing the profession by providing networking, training, and connections for MFTs of color. That's African Americans, Asians Americans, Hispanics, Latino Americans, Native Americans, and other international members, including their white allies please uh, think about becoming a member of this network. Uh, An important dialogue we've had today, as always, both current events in the world and your feedback is instrumental in developing the topics on our podcast each and every episode. You can get a hold of me, info at elikaram.com, E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M.com. Follow us on Twitter, AMFT is at the AMFT. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. Until next time, my friends, let's be good to each other and stay systemic.